Welcome to Four Degrees of Madness. This is our sixth episode. I'm Key. And I'm Lan. And today we have Jeffrey Landis, who is a scientist and a science fiction writer working at the NASA Glenn Research Center on the Mars Exploration Rover's mission and on advanced concepts for power and propulsion for space missions. Welcome, Jeffrey. Okay, thanks for inviting me. I wanted to say thank you for coming on to the show today. Um, we met during the terraforming presentation that you did at U of T um, during a science factor fiction conference. And my first question to you is, would you go to Mars? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely I'd go to Mars. I've been fascinated by Mars just you know, it's a, a whole planet. Nobody's been there. There's so much to explore. I'd go there in an instant. That's a, a wonderful place. So, Jeffrey, you'd live there indefinitely? <laughs> well, it'd be nice to come back home sometimes, I think, yeah. and uh, see yeah. oceans and trees and stuff. But I'd, yes. I'd certainly like to go to Mars to explore. Speaking of oceans and trees, um, I'd love to know from the data on Mars or even on Earth, how would you decide whether or not terraforming Mars is a good idea? Well, if we were thinking about terraforming Mars, the very first thing that we'd have to do is explore it enough to discover whether it has life. It certainly has not yet been ruled out that Mars may have its own life forms. If it did, they'd probably be highly adapted to Mars the way it is now, not the way Mars the way we'd like it to be. So. Mm -hmm just the scientific value of discovering whether there is or isn't life on Mars would just be enormous. So before we do anything, uh, we'd absolutely have to make sure that no, uh, life doesn't have Mars, it's a, it's a dead planet. And once we discovered that, we can say, well, okay, why don't we see if we can remake it to uh, be a planet like we would like. So what kind of life forms do you think there are would be on Mars if there was any? Any any idea? Well, science fiction, of course, has looked into that question for a long time. Okay, How, okay. What life like like on Mars be? Yeah, yeah. Of course, ages ago, people thought that Mars was much more Earth-like than we now know. And partly that's because it's hard to tell from the distance of those 60 million miles or so how thick the atmosphere is. We right. now know that Mars is anything but Earth-like. It's a very, very thin atmosphere, uh, very cold, uh, no liquid water uh, on the surface in the present day. But we do know that it had liquid water in the past and possibly even transient liquid water in the present day. So there could be life. We know that on Earth there's life anywhere that you can find liquid water. If there is, we know it's not big things. We know there aren't any trees on Mars. There's probably not any cows <laughs> or horses or buffalo or, or large forms of life. So, so we're talking about like insects and amphibians? Probial, I think. Uh -huh. uh, but actually, just from the point of view about learning our own place in the universe, uh, discovering microbial life on Mars would be amazing. It would tell us tell us a lot. There is a quote that you spoke about um, when talking about 
science. Um, and I thought that it was a really great way to speak of science. Um, you made it so simple in a great way by saying, um, well, the heart of science is going out and doing things, observing the world, doing experiments, breaking open rocks and seeing what's inside. Um, any place you can go and look in the world, that's science. Mm -hmm. So speaking of, and to encourage people to sort of go into science, I, I wonder, what are you currently curious about in science? What experiments have fasc fascinated you recently? Uh, the things that I've been interested in has sort of been all over. Of course, the Kepler mission and the new TESS mission have been telling us just amazing things about exoplanets. Hmm. Back when I was in college, uh, we thought, oh yes, if there's planets around other stars, and pretty much everybody thought they would be, and they all thought that, oh, they'd be very similar to our solar system. That it would be rocky planets in close to the star, and then gas giant planets, and then maybe smaller gas giants far out. And they said, oh, that's the way a solar system has to be. But what we've just discovered is that's not true at all. Everything we thought we knew about solar systems was just wrong, because we'd only ever seen one solar system, our solar system. So just mm. the new data coming out of exoplanets is just amazing. There's all sorts of things that we never would have guessed about. Nobody would have guessed that there would be planets bigger than Jupiter uh, orbiting their sun closer than Mercury. That was just, who wow. would have thought that? Nobody thought that in the early solar systems, planets moved around. We all thought, oh yeah, well, if the planets are where they are, they were always there. But we're now discovering, wow, no, when solar systems just get formed, uh, the planets haven't settled down to their final positions. They can move inward, they can move outward. What we're learning from the exoplanet studies is just incredible. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. That's definitely something that I'm curious to look into after this as well. Um, and it kind of reminds me of uh, the way that I was getting into science when I was younger too. And actually, I'd, I'd love to ask about that um, with you as well. So you mentioned actually a children's book mm -hmm. called You Will Go to the Moon being sort of the first book that you remember owning at four years old. So it was also, yeah, it was also written in um, second person. How much impact do you think that that had on your interest in aerospace and eventually working at NASA? Well, of course, it's always hard to say, oh, everything was due to just that one book, that single book. Uh, but it's interesting that that is the book that I remember, oh. the very first book that I had. Uh, and it was about a trip to the moon. And it was specifically saying that you, the reader, you are going to go to the moon in the future. And it had beautiful pictures of moon bases and rocket ships and all the wonderful things that we thought, uh, oh, back in the 1950s was uh, the way the future was going to be. And I still kind of want that future where, oh, anybody can get on a spaceship and just go to the moon even six-year-old kids can can go to the moon and see what's there. I, I really want that to happen. So I, I guess in its way, it sort of set me up for thinking the way 
the way things ought to be. So then, you know, you're four years old, right? You're reading that book. Like, you go through it. What are you thinking? Like, what's your first reaction at that age to reading it? Uh, well, I'm thinking, boy, this is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we should be doing. We should be going to the moon. Of course, even back then, I knew that we didn't have spaceships to go to the moon at the time. But I was thinking, well, okay, it'll happen. That's all. <laughs> This will happen in the future. I come from a psychology background, so it's always been fascinating to me um, to read about different characters and how they respond to situations. And um, from an interview when you were speaking about your writing, um, you mentioned that you're so driven by ideas that characters are hard to come by. Mm -hmm. And this is from the Fast Forward Contemporary Science Fiction talk. Um, so my question is, from your experience, what have you found to be the key to creating complex and relatable characters in your stories? What challenges have you faced when forming sort of the psychology behind the characters? Well, the easiest way to make characters is to make characters based on yourself. And I think a lot of authors, of course, do that. And it's easy, and to some extent, you can start making complex characters that way because any human being is complex. We have a dark side, and we have an idealistic side, and we have a, oh, just get out there and fix things side, and I guess, mm -hmm. come to think of it, we also have a, oh, got to go out there and, like, move fast and break things side. So you can make characters <laughs> that show different sides of yourself. That's kind of the easy way. But the harder way to do characters is to just watch people and examine people and say, well, you know, not everybody is like me. Uh, other people are different. Some people are really different. Some people are pretty weird. Uh, and just understand that <laughs> not everybody comes from the same place. Not mm -hmm. everybody's had the same experiences. And I think that can give you kind of more interesting and rounded characters and of course characters that are a little bit more true to the real world the character that i know most about is myself is i get the view from the inside but just looking out and meeting other people and seeing how how different they are that's that's important too what about like okay so you do a character based on yourself right and then you do one tweak, you know what I mean? Just like mm -hmm. one change. Like, what do you think about these variant versions of yourself in the, in the story? Well, yeah, that's another thing you can do is say, what would it have been like if things had been different? And often that's the heart of science fiction. Mm -hmm. You're saying, well, what would it have been like if somebody had been born a hundred years from now and had never been to the planet Earth and lived all their life in a in a space colony and the whole idea of going to a place where you can go outside is oh my god it would be horrifying so you get your imagination involved right <laughs> that is the key to science fiction and yeah. probably the key to everything get yeah. your imagination involved speaking of imagination and dark sides too um really switching gears here uh but wanting to sort of talk about uh negative mass uh, I watched one of your presentations on it, and 
you started by saying mass can mean different things in physics, but they're, they're all related. And what I'd like to know is what you think is most interesting about negative mass. And <laughs> <laughs> we'll start there. Yes. Negative mass is a concept that has sort of come in and out of physics mm -hmm. from time to time. We all know about positive mass. The idea if you have something, uh, a lump of lead, say, uh, it has some mass and it's pulled toward the center of the earth. You let it go, it falls down. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, the first person to really think about it very seriously uh, was a physicist called Bondi. And he said, well, okay, we know mass has positive value. You can have a one kilogram weight or a hundred kilogram weight or a one gram weight, mm -hmm. but you never have a minus one kilogram weight. I said, well, what if you did? What, what would happen if you had a, a minus one kilogram weight? And he said, well, we know from Einstein that gravitational mass, the force on a mass due to gravity, and inertial mass, how much a mass resists being pushed, uh, are the same. Mm -hmm. So a negative mass would react oppositely to gravity, so gravity would push it away from the Earth, but it would also react oppositely to force. So if you push it, it goes the other way. So Whoa. the funny thing about negative mass is if you had, say, a negative one kilogram mass yeah. and you dropped it, even though the force on it is upward, it would move downward toward the center of the Earth. What about negative time? <laughs> <laughs> well, negative time's easy. Just turn around and go the other direction. Yeah, if you want negative Can time, we do it? Just, uh, let's do it. just start growing younger instead of older. Just yeah, do it now. All right, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> of course, our memories would go backwards, too, yeah. if we were doing negative time, so we'd forget that we were doing it. So speaking on um, you know, laws of physics and all that, I know you have uh, Jeffrey's Laws of Robotics that uh, you came up with. So let's, let's for the audience here. So the first law is a robot will do what it's instructed to do, no more and no less, right? Mm. Second law is the language in which instructions are given to the robot is designed to be convenient to the robot, not you. <laughs> and the third law is all consequences of the robot's actions are the responsibility of the programmer not the robot, and the robot doesn't know or care about consequences. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I do some web programming, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing that came to mind is sometimes you get really into the into the problem, right? You're trying to fix something, and, and sometimes it's a very basic problem, like, okay, you want to display a certain um, input or output, right? So you have a certain input, and then it just doesn't happen. <laughs> No matter what you do, you're like, okay, I'm refreshing the page, you know, I'm changing the variable. And then I'm like, is something wrong with this web server? Like you start focusing on, is something actually wrong with it? But then you look back and then it's like, oh, <laughs> I forgot this, you know, semicolon or, you know, yeah, this bracket or this variable, right? So there's always that, you know, simple thing that they, the person who programmed and made. So I'm curious, on, you know, how did you come up with the, the, the laws and what kind of inspiration or what kind of inspired you to make them? Well, I worked with the robotics, of course, somewhat for space missions. Yes. Uh, 
obviously a lot with the the Mars missions, yep. yeah, but also with designing other potential future space missions. But I guess my guilty secret that I have to admit is that I was <laughs> writing those laws of robotics. In fact, uh, one summer when I was playing with Lego robots. Okay. Oh, and I, I love those little ro Lego robots. You sort of put them together and uh, you can yep. kind of make them do what you want them to do, of course, except they never actually work pre quite precisely as you want them to do. They always do kind of what they want to do and not, uh, and not what I want them to do. I know you made an appearance, uh, Jeffrey, on uh, an episode of Naked Science. Uh, on your website, you mentioned, you know, hunt for aliens. So I was kind of interested in that, started looking into the you know, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, right? And, you know, in the series, it talks about the fact that it's easier to actually receive radio signals than actually send them out there, right? And I'm actually curious on <laughs> what would you see the kind of signals we would be like looking to receive, and you know what would they try to send us, or what kind of messages can we expect? Of course, people have been thinking about this for a very long time, and uh, most notably Frank Drake, of course, uh, said, "Well, let's start listening." There's billions and billions of stars out there. Some yeah. of them must have civilizations. Maybe they're sending out radio waves. I think that the scientists who've been looking for the radio signals have been a little bit optimistic about what they're likely to hear. Because, well, we can't even talk to squids today. You try to talk to a squid, they're not going to pay any attention to you. And they're so much more closely related to you than an alien intelligence would be. So I'm thinking, well, what chance would we have of understanding uh, something sent by a, an alien intelligence? If they don't even think the way we do, why do we think they would send things like, oh, the Pythagorean theorem or... Uh, the prime numbers, they probably do something very, very different. And I don't know what they would send, but probably completely different than anything we could imagine. So, do so like uh, I think maybe we might hear their signals, uh, but, miss but them? I don't know if we'd know what they're saying. Uh. It reminds me of the poem that you wrote, Jeffrey, called Search. Yes. Um, and... I thought it was very sweet uh, the way that at the end they were saying, we are here, but the signals that they were sending out were very simple, like one plus one equals two, or one plus two equals three. What would it be like if we got a signal? Would we be able to even tell it was a signal? What if a signal was coming at us and we're looking at it and we didn't even know that it was a signal, that it was something just completely different than what we were looking for? That gives yeah. you a hard question. If you don't know what you're looking for, how do you look for it? How have you gone about looking for what you don't know? Well, of course, sometimes just looking around and seeing what there is to see can tell you something very interesting. But uh, when you don't know what you're looking for, I guess you have to look at everything. Mm -hmm. Speaking of speaking about things, um, Lan, I think there was something about speech, right? Um, the... Yeah, I know like on your website you talked about uh, freedom of speech is one thing that uh, 
you value a lot, right? Is that, is that a fair statement? I do value it a lot. And of course, it has become a pretty controversial issue now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are arguing about, uh, well, what type of speech is going too far? In the uh, Canadian Charter, we have actually under our Canadian Charter of Rights of Freedoms, this is quote uh, from it. So fundamental freedoms, we have freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media uh, communication. So in your view, what does freedom of speech look like? If I'm like, okay, Jeffrey, what's freedom of speech? What what uh, What is that for you? I think freedom of speech in its unadulterated form has to be your ability to say what you're thinking and uh, to be honest and to not have the government say, no, there's things that you're not allowed to say, uh, thoughts that you're not allowed to think. And in fact, that can be very dangerous, as we've seen. Uh, There can be people out there that will use that freedom of speech to promulgate hate. What are you going to do about that? The answer has to be some sort of a trade-off. But I do want to argue that every time you think about trying to stop the people who are promulgating hate or other thoughts that, you know, are really things that you say, oh, those shouldn't be let Mm -hmm. loose in the world, You have to remember those very same people want to stop you from talking. So anytime you make a law that says, oh, I can stop other people's expressions, they're going to be paying attention and they're going to use that law to stop you. Let's say you can't say the word apple, right? (laughs) And and it's, it's a law, right? You cannot say the word apple. So in your example, how would that work out? Like, Let's say I made the rule. I'm like, you cannot say the word Apple. And then you say it, right? I'm like, hey, Jeffrey, you can't say Apple. So so what would, it, what would that look like in terms of, you know, using it against, or me using it? Like, what were you saying earlier in terms of that? Well, you're sort of writing a little science fiction story there, aren't you? <laughs> a little science fiction <laughs> parable ahead, yeah. about a, a world in which, for some reason, you're not allowed to say Apple. Uh-huh. But... You know, who are these people? What is the government? How can they make that law? Yeah. And if they make a law that you can't say Apple, well, what's tomorrow's law going to be? Oh, I see your point. So you're like, if they say one word is not allowed, they can build on and say, okay, well, now you can't say orange or, you know, pear or something. Is that that what you were trying to get at? Yeah. Or whatever it is that you want to think about. They're saying, well, eventually they're saying there's things you're just not allowed to discuss. And, well, sometimes maybe you need to discuss those topics. So, Jeffrey, on your website, I saw a quote uh, from you, actually. It signed oh. you. <laughs> it says, lies it's be hard crafted. to disavow that one, I guess. So lies are crafted to match the hopes and desires and the fears of the intended listener. Truth, on the other hand, is what it is. Neither what you want it to be, nor what you are afraid it will be. So that is why lies are always more believable than the truth. So with that said, you know, for those of us looking to find the truth in in a subject, what would you say to those people? What I'd mostly say is that to 
really find the truth, you have to make sure that you're not blinded by your own preconceptions. This is mostly what science is about. Science is a whole set of techniques. and Here's ways that we can try and look at things without uh, having our own biases influence the answer. But the whole problem in science, and it tends to be the problem in society as well, is making sure that your own prejudices, your own bias, your own thinking, or maybe with a less inflammatory word in science, your own preconceptions don't make you see what you want to see or what you hope to see instead of what's really there. All right. Well, that's, we'll end that off on that note. Uh, so Jeffrey, thank you again for being part of this episode of the four degrees of madness episode number six. six. (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me.